A couple years ago, there was a video that started popping up. First it was in my email inbox, then I saw it on Facebook, then on YouTube. This video was everywhere. You probably saw it too. Tell me if you recognize. We have evolved alongside the honeybee in a symbiotic relationship. We care for them, they pollinate our crops, and of course, make lots of delicious honey. But getting the golden nectar has always been quite a task. I just thought it was crazy to have to crack the hive open, pull the hive apart, stress out all the bees, and spend all day in the shed just to get your honey. And I thought, hmm, there must be a better way. So my dad and I got to work. And we've done it. Now you can simply turn a tap and pure fresh honey flows right out of your hive. Delicious, ready for you to eat. Oh, it's amazing, it's amazing, it's honey on tap. The flow hive, that thing was everywhere. Even if you weren't a homesteader, even if you didn't have a small hobby farm, you probably heard about the flow hive. Turn a tap, sit back and watch the honey pour out. It's pure, unprocessed, untouched, delicious honey directly from the hive. No mess, no fuss, no expensive equipment, and much more friendly for the bees. This is the first time in the world this has been possible. There is nothing else like it. It really is a revolution. This father and son team looked at something that hadn't been changed for years, hundreds of years. Beekeeping and the methods that were being used were pretty much the same. And they went and they changed it. They changed the whole scene. They designed something newer that seemed to make it easier, seemed to make it better, not only for people, but also for the bees. And this was really important part of their story because as so many of you know, every year more and more bees are dying. And at the same time, bees are incredibly important to us as human beings. It's been estimated that somewhere around a quarter to a third of the food we eat, we would not be eating if we didn't have bees. So every year you have bees that are dying, we don't know why, colony collapse, and yet the beekeepers are out there using methods that as these guys said, we're stressing out bees. You see in the one shot there, that little bee's getting smushed. We have to take care of our bees. We have to make beekeeping better for them. So they designed this honey flow hive with the mission of making beekeeping easier on the beekeeper and better for the bees. Turn a tap, sit back and watch the honey pour out. It's pure, unprocessed, untouched, delicious honey directly from the hive. No mess, no fuss, no expensive equipment and much more friendly for the bees. This is the first time in the world this has been possible. There is nothing else like it. And this video, you probably saw it, it blew up, it became viral. Their crowdfunding campaign was one of the largest, most successful crowdfunding campaigns ever. They raised over $16 million to build these beehives. That's an incredible amount of money. And while you might think to yourself, okay, it's a father and son, they started a business, they made a video, and they made a bunch of money, good for them. Remember what they said at the very beginning of the video. We have evolved alongside the honeybee in a symbiotic relationship. We care for them, they pollinate our crops, 
and of course make lots of delicious honey. We have a symbiotic relationship with the bees. We need to take care of the bees, they are taking care of us. Not only did they have a product that succeeded really well because a lot of people saw their video, but they had a really big mission to make beekeeping something that's really important for every human being on the planet to be easier on the bees and to be easier on people so that we could have more bees and make sure that every year less and less colonies are collapsing. It was a business that had a really big noble mission. And that's probably why so many people rallied around the cause and supported their crowdfunding campaign. We're not talking about bees tonight, but we are going to talk about you, your homestead business, or even if you don't have a homestead business, your homestead's mission, and how you can make sure that even in a small way, you can get eyes on what you're doing, you can get the publicity you need so that your homestead mission, whether it's really small, just trying to feed your own family off your own land, or if it grows a little bit to feeding your neighbors better quality food, giving chickens pasture, trying to save some heritage breed, whatever your homestead mission is, if nobody hears about it and nobody can support it, it will fail. We're going to make sure in tonight's interview that your homestead's mission does not fail, that it succeeds. You might not make as much millions as the Flow Hive did, but not every mission needs that. So let's dive in tonight to this subject of getting some publicity on your homestead. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. We have a special guest here who is an expert in this field. And while I was really excited that we were bringing Tiffany on because uh, she's, for one, she's a PhD in communications. She's got 20 years of experience in the communications industry. Uh, she spent a decade as a university professor uh, training people just before the show. She was talking about teaching broadcasting. Uh, she knows how to tell the story to an audience. Uh, she also 
is really in touch with homesteaders and farm life. I am sitting at, in my house in the family vineyard right now. <laughs> That's where I'm at. When I was when I was young, we moved from the suburbs to a big piece of land because my parents um, had a dream just to be a little more sustainable, just to have their kids live a little closer to the earth. I grew up in a family with a small business and we also had a hobby farm. They were not the same business, um, but we had livestock and you know, tried lots of different livestock. We had the chickens and the ducks and the eggs and the bees. We're probably the only farm in the South that can't grow zucchini. So if any of your audience has advice on zucchini, please email me and tell me because I love zucchini and I can't seem to grow it like in my whole life, <laughs> um, but I grew up here and went off to school and studied communications, really was intrigued with um, public relations and broadcast. And my first job out of college was a producer for a television station. I uh, quickly became an anchor and reporter and had an interview show and a travel show. And so I spent all of my days looking for stories, trying to find people and businesses and unusual things in the community to tell stories about. And that's harder than it looks sometimes. And so it was really helpful when people would come to me and say, Hey, we've got this great story you might want to consider. And just people introducing themselves to me in different lines of work was really, really helpful. So I did that for a number of years, um, but quickly realized that working in television, as fun as it was, um, didn't support the kind of lifestyle that I wanted. It is always on the go. You're never home. It was hard to have animals. It was hard to garden because you just weren't ever there. So I started looking at shifting gears, um, worked for the family business, and then ended up uh, the surprise of all surprises, teaching in a university. It was um, a surprise to me because I'd said I would never teach. And so uh, in that time, I just um, was really missing that and really missing being close to the land and um, was working still in television and, and in journalism. I was teaching public relations. I was teaching journalism during that time. And I was at the very first Mother Earth News Fair that came to Texas and got to go and just listen to people share their story. And I was really surprised by how many people um, really didn't know much about how they could get the amazing work that they were doing in their farms and their homesteads and the agricultural realm into the media. And there's been such an interest in the um, farm to table movement and the slow living movement that there's a ton of content out there to be had, but it's very hard sometimes to track down people who are willing to share in the agricultural industry. And so that kind of planted a little seed in the back of my mind. And about that same time, um, my dad and I decided to go in together and put in a vineyard. So I have to ask you, uh, why, you why did you guys decide to start a vineyard? Oh, because it looked glamorous. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I you believe know, it. That's why a lot of us get into this. We started just because uh, there was a growing market in Texas for grapes. Um, we don't have a winery. We just strictly um, grow the grapes. And they're actually, interestingly, in this part of Texas, um, historically, it had been a, a vibrant viticultural region. How many years have you guys been running the, uh, the vineyard? So this is our, we're about to put in our fourth year of plantings. Actually, next year, um, year five is when we'll see kind of that full harvest, full scale harvest on the first of the plantings. It's always a, uh, it's a slow game in homesteading. It's a long game in homesteading, a long game in farming. Uh, but boy, when you start to get that harvest, it really is a good thing. It's exciting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, each each in individual enterprise, you know, has its own unique time frame, right? You get meat, chickens, it's an eight-week wait, and then you get your harvest. 
vineyard seems like one of the longer waits from, from yeah, you get grapes and it's five years yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> if you can keep them alive oh man I um, but used... i like to say that that having a vineyard is just farming with a much better publicist <laughs> i saw that in your application to get on the show i thought all right this is going to be a fun interview uh, tell our audience how you got to be where you are today we started planting a vineyard and and i would um come back to the property where we had the vineyard and I would help, you know, on weekends and things like that and uh, during our, our planting parties. Um, but I was mostly doing administrative work, but I was spending a lot of time networking and meeting other people in the industry and saw firsthand just how challenging it was and intimidating it could be for people to talk to the media. Many of us have had some bad experiences or we don't always um, think highly of, of the media as a whole. And so um, just being able to sort of casually share my experiences and help other people in that industry um, that were trying to start vineyards, trying to grow them, helping them get publicity, helping them get noticed so that their businesses could grow um, was something that I just started doing as a hobby. And it was so much fun. But again, that seed in the back of my my mind was growing. And so um, I earned tenure at the university. Like I said, I was there for nine years. I earned tenure on a Thursday. Uh, went back to the vineyard for a week for spring break and came back on Tuesday and turned in my resignation <laughs> from the university. So not the typical trajectory for a university professor. Uh, <laughs> and I came back and I launched the business full time. So now I help businesses of all different kinds, but especially people who are in the agricultural realm, who are artisans, um, who are creatives. I help them kind of learn how to do uh, their own public relations, whether that's content creation or getting into the media or creating their own media channels through podcasts and YouTube channels and blogs and that kind of thing. And I help them grow their businesses um, because there's more farms, you know, we're seeing that this is something that people want to participate in. We see a lot of people that are interested in uh, being closer to the land and raising their families and providing for their families in that way. But that also means there's more competition from a business sense. And so um, what I really try to do is help people get visibility in saturated markets. So let's dive into what you're here for, Tiffany. Publicity. A lot of the homesteaders I know don't want any they don't want anybody looking on their property yeah. they don't want anybody's eyes they want everyone to go away they want to put up no trespassing signs why would somebody even want any attention on their homestead in the first place that's such a great question and before i go any further let me say i i totally explain that i'm this weird combination of intensely private um but then with a career that's been very public and so it's a very um different it's a very unusual balance and so i completely understand that not wanting to have anybody there and eyes on the site uh, if you are just um homesteading for your family's sake and you aren't worried about um, selling to consumers or selling to other businesses you probably don't need a whole lot of eyes on there unless any time that you're wanting to support your um, homestead business or your agricultural business by uh selling to someone else, that publicity is really um, central to to getting more eyes on your product. Um, it's a lot more powerful than advertising. In fact, there's a classic study that we study in school about putting um, an advertisement in a magazine for your product or having someone in an article write about your product. And audiences are seven times more likely to purchase from you if they read the article than they are if they see the advertisement. And in many cases in that study, people didn't even notice the advertisement because we're pretty savvy about ads. We know when we're being advertised to and we kind of gloss over those. But when someone else is talking about how great your stuff is, people tend to listen. Um, advertising is you saying that you're great. Um, publicity is someone else saying you're great and it just carries a lot more weight to it. Um, and it's free to get. 
I like to explain to my students that when you think about publicity and PR work, it's like bees going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. They go out to the pollen, they bring it back, go out to the pollen, bring it back, and they're creating buzz. And that's exactly what you're doing with your business. You're getting out there, you're sending people back, you're creating buzz around your product or around your business. Um, but also, if you are to that point that you really do want to become a thought leader, if you want to be shaping the way that people are thinking about or building their homesteading businesses, thinking about the way that we eat, um, publicity really is the best way to get that authority, that thought thought leadership, if you will. Um, you know, perfect example of this. I'm sure you guys all know Joel Salatin um, and all of the stuff he's written about. Joel Salatin at Polyface Farms didn't just wake up one day and be Joel Salatin. If you go look at his site, you'll notice that he's got a history of writing for the media, um, writing articles, being interviewed in podcasts, being interviewed on television and things like that. And so you may not want to be in that position because it is true that the more eyes you have on you, the more open you are for scrutiny. Um, but if you are wanting that kind of growth, if you do want to be in that thought leadership position, publicity is the way that you do it. Um, one of the things I find with people that work in agricultural in agriculture is that they know their work really well. Like they know what they do. They know how to raise things. They know how to grow things. They're amazing at what they do. But there's this expectation that you're also supposed to understand how to market your business. And it's like, where, where are you supposed to learn that from? You know, that's a whole lot of trial and error. You can waste a lot of time and money doing that. We um, talk about this a lot. Kay and I go to a lot of different farms and we, we find the farmers who have been doing it for decades. We find, you know, the old time farmer who's just a master at his craft. And the thing that we always joke about is these like nine times out of 10 are the most introverted, quiet guys who I go with the idea of interviewing them. And I'm like prying them like to just say something on the camera. They have so much knowledge, but that just like you said, Tiffany, they're they're what their craft is, what they're really good at is their farm and what they're doing, what they've learned all those years. It's not also telling that story. It's not also convincing people why their product is better. And a, I think a lot of homesteaders are going to relate to that because a lot of us, not all of us are extroverts, not all of us. Me, I'd run a camera 24-7. It doesn't bother me. But most homesteaders aren't like that. Most homesteaders just want some peace and quiet. That's why they went to the country in the first place. When it comes to selling products, you have to be a little bit of a storyteller. You have to be a bit of a marketer. I always said that if my um, communications career didn't take off, I wanted to be a hermit alpaca farmer. Like that was kind of my <laughs> second dream. Right. So I totally get it. I totally get just wanting to kind of hide away from the world and, and enjoy the peace and the quiet that comes there. Um, so when we talk about being media savvy, this this kind of explains why um, some businesses, some farmers get featured in the media and others don't. We can talk a little bit more about that in a minute, too, about that plan. But being a media savvy homesteader or farmer um, is going to look like, first and foremost, understanding what it takes to get noticed. And so they understand that it takes some effort. Uh, you will occasionally have someone that hears about you and reaches out to you and, and wants to do an interview or wants to feature you, um, but that's unlikely. And when that happens, you, you kind of lose control over the story that you're telling about your homestead or your farm. Um, I tend to think that the savvier way to do that is to really create a strategy and then work that strategy 
for your business. And so you have some control over the stories you're telling, um, where those stories are being featured. And so you understand when you're savvy about this, that it takes some effort. It takes some work on your part and it takes a strategy that you work and you act on. It also means that there's a certain extent to which you are fine-tuning your story. So some people, like you said, are natural storytellers. A lot of people aren't. Uh, so one of the things I would say just start with to be media savvy is with your own website. Um, have your story there clear and easy for people to see. Um, and if you don't feel comfortable with storytelling, you can always have a friend that's a great writer who has kind of an outside perspective on your business write about you. And it's not expensive if you're growing and you really want to invest in that. It's not expensive to have a copywriter write just a quick um, bio or about section to just really condense that story and make it powerful. So that's not a difficult thing to do. You fine tune that story. So you're kind of controlling what people are seeing, the story that you're sharing, and then you reach out. And that's that's a big thing that um, it, it takes to be savvy is that you're reaching out to the reporters and people in your industry or people that write about you. So if you live in an area and uh, you want to have your farm featured, the best place that you can start really is to go to your local newspaper and look to see who covers the agriculture beat or the food beat, you know, or the restaurant beat or whatever it is uh, that really is meaningful to your and, and relevant to your industry. And then just reach out to the reporter there and introduce yourself. Like I said before, when I was looking at stories, it was so helpful to have someone step in and say, or introduce themselves and say, Hey, I'm so-and-so just want to let you know, I'm in this business. I know that you write about this and this and this, we have this business and we do these things. Um, so if you ever have any questions or need to cover a story, we're here. And here's my contact information. That was so helpful um, because for someone that works in the media industry, they don't have a lot of time. They don't have a lot of help. And so for someone to reach out to them with contact information or even a full story idea, is massive. That's such a huge help. And you're a whole lot more likely to get covered when you reach out. That also, again, gives you um, some of that freedom to kind of portray your business and your story the way you want it told, because you're really helping to shape the story that's being told. So we're reaching out and again, making your business really easy to get in contact with. So on your site, on your website, if I have to dig through six or seven pages to find contact information, <laughs> or if I have to fill out a form that's meant for, you know, your CSA or something, I'm probably not going to go to all that trouble. But if on your about page, there's an email address or a phone number that I can get in touch with you, that's really helpful. That's also very helpful if you are doing business with consumers because they need to be able to get in touch with you too. And if they're having just as much trouble tracking you down as I'm having trouble tracking you down, um, then they're probably not going to be doing business with you because they can't get a hold of you. And a lot of people aren't going to dig as far as a journalist might dig to find that contact information. So make yourself easy um, to get in contact with. And then finally, provide value. When you're media savvy, you understand that what really gets you featured is providing value to the media professional that you're reaching out to. So um, this is uh, creating great story ideas or great content or suggestions. This is talking about trends in the industry. Um, so there's lots of different things. We can talk more about that in a minute if you like, but you really are um, working to provide them value. What you don't want to do it's okay if I say that. Um, what you don't want to do is, first of all, you don't want to get upset if you see someone that you 
perceive as um, a competition to you. If you get, if you see them get featured, you don't want to get upset about it and call up that reporter and be like, why didn't you feature me? You know, this was a great story about camels on the homestead. And I also have camels on, on the homestead. Have you seen the channel? Come on. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're like the only person in a 200 mile radius that has a camel. <laughs> Um, fantastic news opportunity there, right there. We can talk about I was, that. Yeah, but, I was um, going to ask you questions about that. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah, that that would fall under what we call the newsworthy category of a novelty story. Like, who else has a camel, right? <laughs> so that would definitely get you some features. Um, if you see a story, let's say that you you know make um, that you have like sauerkraut. Let's say you make sauerkraut and that's your thing and you sell it and you see someone write a story about another sauerkraut you know, maker in your area, don't call them up and say, hey, I also make sauerkraut. Would you write a story about me? Well, no, because they just did that story. What you want to do is look for um, the stories that are being told about your industry and target that reporter and know that, hey, they write about things like me, but then come up with a different perspective or a follow-up story to that rather than getting upset that they didn't cover you because they probably just didn't know that you were there. Um, don't assume that you're bothering the journalist either by reaching out. A lot of times people think, well, I don't want to bother them. They're really busy. They love great content ideas. So don't think that that's a bother. Don't think that that's inconvenient. They appreciate it. Um, and then finally, don't offer to write the story for them. So if someone does come to you and says, hey, I'd like to interview you, don't tell them, hey, I'll write the story for you. Um, it's a little different when you're being interviewed than if you're guest posting. And guest posting is another great way to get publicity. But if you have a reporter that's coming to talk to you, let them write the story um, and then use your quotes and your information in there. So obviously there's a big difference between um, pitching yourself to the newspaper, pitching yourself to an actual reporter, and pitching yourself to a podcaster that lives on a farm. But some of the things you said, Tiffany, uh, I thought, man, even to me matter when someone wants to be on my show. Because I get, we have, you know, the podcast gets thousands and thousands of downloads and people want to be on the show. I actually have a, a guest form, which Tiffany filled out. She went through the whole procedure, filled out the form, and that's why she's on the show. And if you'd like to be on the show, fill out the form, you might get on the show. But the thing I want to mention was I have people who will fill out that form and it says, I got it right here, proposed show topic. And of course, Tiffany, like she just said, she has multiple good ideas here on the proposed show topic. I have people fill out that form and they go, ah, we'll just chat about whatever. And I've never interviewed one of those people. Because I don't want to just chat about whatever. If I'm going to bring you on the show, you need to have value. My audience doesn't want to watch a show about whatever. All of you watching tonight got my email that said, hey, later tonight, Tiffany's coming on the show. This, these are her credentials. This is what we're going to talk about. And that's why you're watching right now. Other than some of you who just watch every week, that's good too. But you watch because every week there's value. Uh, so I love those points. Make sure that you know what your value is, what your story is. Uh, I, I think that is whether or not you're pitching that, pitching a uh, a newspaper, or if you're at the farmers market pitching your product, whatever it is, you have to be able to identify that value and then share that and and highlight that. Tiffany, do you have any advice for someone who's like, I don't know what's my value? Any questions they can ask, anywhere they can look to identify and then cleanly share that value? 
Absolutely. That's an excellent question. Uh, so a lot of people in today's day that are getting into homesteading, a lot of them have left the corporate world because they don't want to be in the corporate world anymore. But there are still some excellent tools that we can take from that to apply to marketing our businesses in the agricultural realm. And one of those is just to know your elevator pitch. So, you know, if you have to explain to someone, like you said, at the farmer's market or in a podcast pitch or to a reporter in 30 seconds or one or two sentences, what can you say about what you do? It's a great exercise to just sit down and figure out, okay, what is my unique selling proposition? What makes me different or unusual or unique? Um, I've worked with a copywriter before who says it's your... Um, your only you factor, your onlyness factor that is, you know, what is it about you that's different than everyone else? And so if you've never done that before, that's a fantastic place to start. Take some time to sit down and say, what do we do? What's our mission? Why are we in this? Because everyone has a different story for why they got into it. Um, there will be some similar factors, but you have your own unique story to tell. And so sit and think about why you're doing what you're doing. Um, what's the, the value that you're trying to offer or create? What's your mission behind that business? Like you were talking about Flowhive, they have a very specific mission. And it's fine if it's as simple as, you know, I want to um, provide for my family. I want to provide healthier, better food, or I want my kids to get to grow up on the land, you know, and not um, in the same system that their peers are growing up in. But really take time, especially if you're dealing with customers to understand why it is that you went into that business in the first place. What is it about raising chickens and selling them or um, growing your own vegetables or selling camel milk, if that's in the future, right? So what is it and what's the reason behind why you're doing what you're doing? Then look at what makes your product different. What is it about your processes um, that are that's making that product unique or special or better or different than anything else people can get on the market? And so take some time to really understand that and dig into that, get it down on paper, and then just start condensing and condensing. And rather than telling your entire life story, get that down to you know, a maximum of three sentences, um, two and one, if you can do it that way, and really begin to condense that story into just the most important factors and features. Um, that's one of the great places to start. Once you have that down, you can start looking when you're talking about finding that unique story of yours and the value that you add. There are several things that you can look at. You can look at the product that you create or the service that you offer. Uh, you can look at the way that you're doing that. Um, so is there something in your process or in your materials that is new or different or unusual or innovative or disruptive? And those are some great things to look for across your business. What are you doing that's new, that's innovative, that's disruptive, that's unique? Right. So those are some of the things that we look for. That's you know, novel. What's the novelty factor? Um, is there a particularly compelling human interest story behind what you're doing? Something about your children's health or your own health. Um, and so, you know, if you listen ever to um, Melissa K. Norris, she'll talk a lot about her health background and her background and why she moved into homesteading as a way of providing for her family. You know, and so those are all um, unique stories. And so really look across your industry and see across your business and see what it is that's unique to you, that's different and what makes your product stand apart. And you may think, I mean, I grow tomatoes. What's so special about that? Well, look at the varieties that you're growing. Chances are likely you've got some heirloom or heritage, you know, vegetables in there. Um, chances are likely that you're doing, there's a reason that you pick the specific breed of chicken that you're raising or, or cows or sheep, whatever it is. And so really look at those decisions that you've made all along the way 
and you will find something unique and interesting in there. I've never worked with a business that doesn't have some really fascinating, unique story when they really sit down to dig into it, and especially with homesteaders, with homesteaders, because um, the very fact that you're doing what you're doing is unique in and of itself. And while it's a growing industry in most parts of the country, it's still not mainstream. I mean, it's far from mainstream. And so just the fact that you're doing that is unique in and of itself. And it isn't hard to get much coverage for something that is that unusual. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. When you have somebody, especially if you're not already creating media, if you're not already a podcaster, you're not already a YouTuber, you're not used to looking at a camera lens, you get a person on your property you don't know who you recognize, maybe they're a local news anchor, or they're, lo- right, they're a local reporter, uh, local reporter, the anchor wouldn't show up on your thing. But uh, you get this person, you're feeling intimidated, now there's a big old camera and the lens is pointed right at you and they got microphones and... Uh, it's easy to get nervous. Any advice on giving a good interview, how to not how to have some confidence going into that interview? Sure. And also most people assume that um, you know, that if you go into that industry that you're born with the ability to just, you know, perform in front of the camera. My first time in the television studio, I forgot my name. It was on the teleprompter. Okay. <laughs> so the fact that I built my career as a public speaker and an on-air talent um, is hilarious to anyone who knows me um, because that was my experience the first time in the studio. So you can overcome it and it is okay if that first time um, or second or 10th time, you're a little bit nervous. Um, it gets a little bit easier every time you do it. So the more you practice, the more you interview, the better it gets, the easier it gets. But yes, there are some specific things that you can do. Um, to make that a better experience for you. The first thing I would say is prepare talking points in advance. If you have just a sheet of paper that has a few bullet points about these are the topics that you want to talk about, or if you have some specific numbers or statistics that you're afraid you're going to forget, go ahead and include those on a piece of paper that you keep with you. Um, This is especially helpful if you are doing a podcast or a phone interview, which most of them will be, unless you're doing a television interview, most of them um, are going to be off screen. And so you can have those talking points with you. Um, So have those prepared. Um, I wouldn't recommend like, yeah. Talking points. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years and I still don't go into an interview without those talking points prepared. Um, you don't need like 26 of them. 
Um, but have, especially for a shorter interview, you know, three or four points. I had a professor once in my PhD program, actually, he talked about research, but I find that it's extremely helpful to apply this to, to interviews as well. He said, pick what you call your walk away questions. These are the, the two or three things or walk away points, the two or three things that you can't walk away without mentioning, make sure that you get those. And so if you're doing this with a shorter interview, have those two or three or four walk away points, the things that you, it's absolutely really important to you that you bring up um, in that interview. Then the other one, and this is something that, again, I still do 20 years in the industry, and I still do this. Um, I get in front of a mirror and I practice answers to predictable questions. So I know that you're going to ask, you know, tell me about yourself. I know that you're going to say, why'd you get into this? And so practice answering those questions. If you don't feel comfortable yet doing it in front of a mirror, um, just talk out loud to yourself. Call it a staff meeting. I'm just kidding. Um, so just talk out loud. Practice those those answers, those responses. Um, then when you feel like you've got kind of your words figured out, take your phone or recorder and record it. Listen back to it. You'll be amazed what you pick up on when you go back and listen or watch a recording of yourself answering questions, even if it's just to you. You'll pick up on some nervous habits. You'll pick up on um, redundancy in your word choices. But the more you practice that, the more streamlined your answers become because you aren't having to think of the words and process externally. I'm a big external processor, so I have to sort of talk things through and talk them out. And so if I've had the opportunity to say something several times, by the time I get to that interview, it's usually a lot more concise. So practice. Don't be afraid of silence. That's another one. Um, one of the, the things that I used to do, one of the exercises I did with my students when I was teaching them broadcast interviewing techniques I would ask them a question and then they would hurry to answer that question and then I would just stay silent because everybody wants to fill the silence, right? Like all of a sudden, you know, you're broadcasting. So all of a sudden there's this urge to have to fill it. Don't be afraid of the silence. Take that opportunity um, to think through what you want to answer. The only time that that might be problematic is if you're in a live interview situation and most of you aren't gonna be starting you know, right off the bat in a live situation. So take your time, think through that answer before you answer it and don't be afraid of that silence. Use it to your advantage. If you sense that the interview is going off topic, have those talking points and steer it back into that direction where you want to talk about. Um, professionals, celebrities, politicians are great at that. Watch an interview with them and you'll see how here's the question and they'll very neatly in a sentence sort of bypass the question right back to their talking <laughs> point. <laughs> and so yep. if you feel it, you know, going astray, go ahead and pull it back into that area that you want to talk about. And there's no, no problem with that because you're wanting to control that story as much as possible. And then don't be afraid of being nervous. When I was growing up, my mom always said, turn that nervous energy into excited energy. One of the things that I found over the years, I still get nervous before I get interviewed for anything. And again, I've been doing this for a long time. One of the things I found is that that can actually give you an edge. It can make your presentation a little more dynamic and personable. So if you embrace that, that, hey, I'm a little bit nervous about this because it's important and that's okay. You can use that adrenaline and that energy to create a livelier, more charismatic, more dynamic interview that actually will sound and look a whole lot better than if you were totally calm and relaxed and dull. <laughs> what do you do when you're done, you've done your interview, it all checks out and you know this is going to be airing soon. What are the next steps to take advantage of this, this moment when the attention's on you? Right. You're going to leverage the heck out of it. Okay. <laughs> so 
Um, a lot of times people think, oh, well, that piece is done. And so it's, it's done, it's over. And actually that's just the beginning because it's an amazing opportunity to reuse that and leverage it in a lot of different ways. Um, so there are several things that I would recommend that you do. Um, if you have an email list and if you're growing a business, you should have an email list. Um, that's just, you know, good practice, especially if you do a lot of, of business online. If you have a, a local, um, locally focused business, it's still helpful, especially if you're doing a CSA or something like that. It lets you get that information out to your audience. So um, send it in an email newsletter and just say, hey, we were featured here. Customers love to see that the people they do business with, the brands that they buy from, they love to see when they're featured because there's kind of this sense of, oh, hey, I knew about these people before they were cool. And now look, you know, the media is even picking up on them. They're kind of proud of themselves that they found you. And so it actually can increase loyalty. So start with your own audience and send it out in that email. Um, get it on any social media channels that you have. It's kind of like a free post for you. You know, you don't have to come up with content. And so just say, hey, here's um, this thing that we did. Put it on your Instagram, put it on Twitter, um, link it to Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever, wherever else you are online. Um, TikTok, if you're on TikTok. Yeah. I would love to know if any of your homesteaders are on TikTok. Um, <laughs> Comment below. Yeah. Um, put it on your website. And so um, you can use that uh, endorsement on your website. Again, when people find you for the first time and they see, hey, you've been featured in this, this, and this. It's what we call social proof when they see that. Uh, the idea is that there's, again, someone else that says that you're good at what you do. And so people are more likely to buy from someone um, that they you know have been featured or they they have that social proof it's that credibility um so you put it in all of those places and then you can also use it to send more pitches to that same reporter um you can say hey you know we covered this here's another story that you might love um, and then you can use that to other reporters hey i've been featured here and so maybe you'd like to feature me as well and you know um, media professionals are just like anyone else they go well they're all these people are talking to them. Maybe I should be too. You know, I don't want to miss out on anything. The concept here is a concept that in research we call social proof. Uh, and the the simple you know illustration of that is let's say that you go to a new city and you want to find a really great restaurant. So you and a friend or family member go downtown. There's two restaurants side by side. One of them has a line that wraps around the building. The other one has no one but kind of a, a mournful looking waiter standing outside. Most people are going to choose the restaurant that has the long line because if there's no one here and a bunch of people here, this one must be good. Like people that are in the know are going to this one and this one probably isn't any good. So we go to the one that's less risk. Your business works the same way. People want to eliminate risk before they invest with you, whatever the size of that investment. So if they can see that a third party has vetted you, then you have that social proof, that credibility. And it works the same when you're pitching to another reporter, you have social proof and credibility. So you leverage that coverage and you use that in a lot of ways to reinforce a loyal fan base, but to build a fan base as well and grow your business credibility. So Tiffany, show us how a professional leverages right at the end of the interview what do you tell the audience now? How are you going to start leveraging? I would say uh, there's so much more that we could talk about, even the whole strategy and how we get that material ready to go and how to send a great pitch. And so for your audience, I've got a great gift for them. If they'll go to my website and you'll have that linked tiffanyyerick.com slash homesteady. I've got a free training for them and it's kind of your PR starter kit. It's all about how to get your website and your business ready before you start pitching the media, because there's lots of things that you want to have in place. It's simple. It's easy to do. You can do it in a couple of hours um, or an hour spread over a couple of days. 
but it's going to significantly increase the possibility and the likelihood that you'll get covered when you do start pitching to the media. So I would love for them to visit and check that out. And if they'd like, I'm at Instagram at Dr. Tiffany Urich, and I'll be happy to answer any other questions. If they have questions, feel free to follow me on Instagram and ask them there. Awesome. Leverage like a professional right there. <laughs> awesome, awesome advice, Tiffany. It's been a great interview. I think a lot of our audience, a lot of the pioneers especially, are going to enjoy this. But everybody watching here on YouTube too, if you're looking to either start the business or uh, become a thought leader as Tip Tiffany described, um, just so much good stuff here for people to pour over. So we will have links below if you want to check out uh, Tiffany's offer for the Homesteady audience, uh, help you get your pitch all ironed out. And uh, also check out our website and uh, maybe order some wine too. Is wine for sale yet? Years no, coming? but we do have, we will have grapes this summer, but, right, no, but you have to buy a Texas wine and get some of our grapes in there. Okay, there we go. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I hope it helps you grow your homestead business or gets your homestead story shared, whatever your goals are. If you loved that interview and you were like, man, I wish this was like twice as long. Consider becoming a homesteady pioneer. This interview was about half of the entire interview. We went on to talk about how to stand out at the farmer's market. When you're at the farmer's market, everybody's nature's this and, and wellness that, and, and that's okay. If that, and if you can still tell your story, if your farm's called nature something, that's okay. Just gotta nail your pitch. But I wanted this to stand out because it is food that's gonna stand out. Tiffany gave some awesome advice on how to really perfect your elevator pitch. That's one of the great things about that that pitch. When you're developing that elevator pitch, whether it's to the media or to a prospective buyer, what you want through that quick you know, sentence or two is a hook. If you want to listen to the entire episode and all our extended versions, you can find those in the Homesteady Pioneer Library. Click the link in the description of this podcast. Become a Homesteady Pioneer. You'll gain access to the extended versions of all our podcasts. And you'll be able to join us live for these recordings.